You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning, welcome to the show. Wednesday the 18th, and we really are cramming the court into a pint pot on this morning's programme. First off, though, we need to deal with the weather and the weekend and what's going to happen. Uh, Ascot's clerk of the course, Chris Stickles, has spoken to me about the chances of the Clarence House chase going ahead. This is what he had to say. We, 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 are, we are frozen, certainly, in places at the moment. Um, we had minus one and a half last night, and actually the frost is more in the ground this morning than it was yesterday after minus six and, that, and that's possibly because you know temperatures yesterday only just got above uh well just got above freezing they got a one degree um for a short period of time during the day yesterday so it's a, a really cold day all day yesterday today however it is forecast to, to, to get to plus four uh, as it is sort of for, for, for uh thursday friday and saturday but Again, sub-zero temperatures at night, uh, each night, make it look pretty challenging. We'll have to, we're just going to keep monitoring the situation and see if, it, see if we get a thaw today. Uh, and that will give us a bit better, a bit more of an idea of to, 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 to the possibilities for Saturday then. But if you get the minus two, minus three, minus three, minus two, that kind of thing all the way into Saturday, is it fair to say you're going to struggle? Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, the, if, if you get um, c- continued frost night after night, it, it tends to, unless it actually thaws in the day and comes completely out of the ground, you know, they, then you tend to just get a build-up of that, of that, of that colder, you know, <laughs> colder temperatures in the soil that, 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 that make it longer to, you know, it takes longer to, to, to thaw. So, you know, uh, you know, if, if, if we get continuous, continued nights of frost, sub-zero, and it doesn't thaw in the day, then, then, then it's really challenging. So, uh, yeah, that picture will become clearer, you know, later today, tomorrow, um, uh, you, you know, as, as, and then also the forecast as we get closer to Friday night should should also, you know, become become clearer because at the moment there are there, there are discrepancies in the forecast. You know, some are suggesting minus three and some are suggesting just minus one. So, uh, yeah, but it does look like we're going to be struggling. All right, what about Haydock, Kirkland, Tellwright? What's the situation with you? Well, I think we're even money. Um, we would raise today. There's a bit of frost forecast for tonight and tomorrow night, which I think would leave those those days challenging. But it then gets milder again on Friday night. And if, if the forecast is accurate, I think we'll just about scrape through. But it has to be accurate. If it gets much colder, you'd be, you'd be in trouble. If it, if it gets colder on Friday night, we'll be eaten. But at the moment, even money. Even money. All right, that's Haydock then. Uh, what about Taunton? Big day of the year for them. Jason Loosemore joins me from Taunton. How are you getting on, Jason? Yeah, um, we're currently still frozen in places. Um, temperatures set today to rise to a balmy five degrees, um, which I'm hoping will have a positive impact throughout today. I'm going to look again at three o'clock uh, this afternoon and see how we're faring. Um, the, my only concern is that we do have frosts forecast for each night, uh, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday night, albeit not as cold as we got on Monday evening. Um, we could get sort of minus two figures, but I'd like to see the frost coming out of the ground uh, during the course of today. So we'll have a look at look at three o'clock. Not, not any inspection of any sort, but to see how things are going at three, okay? 
And in addition to Ascot, Haydock, Taunton, Lingfield have abandoned the Friday of the Winter Million. That came through just after yesterday's podcast. They still go ahead all weather Saturday. They're trying to get a nine race card on Sunday, including two of the races from the abandoned Friday card. Now, you'll be interested if you if you bought the uh, pre-book ticket with the three-day pass. You're still welcome to attend if they still do the two days. And they'll be offering all bookers for this package to attend a 2023 race day of their choice. I don't know what happens if two days are abandoned. I guess you then get two race days uh, of your choice. Restaurant bookings and hospitality will not be taking place and we're given an option of a full refund or a choice to book uh, another day. And I'm waiting on the BHA to tell me whether the Clarence House chase, if it is, as looks likely off at Ascot on Saturday, then would go to Cheltenham the following weekend. Lee Motter said, uh, Racing Post senior writer, that would seem like the obvious thing to do, Lee, but we're in in the grip of this, it looks like at the moment. Yeah, it's it's very very cold outside. Nick, I I I go to a a gym by Tottenham Corner, uh, and driving past this morning, Epsom was white over. Everywhere is white over. I'm sure Cheltenham is white over at the moment. But you're right; it doesn't the obvious place for what now looks a very dicey Clarence House at Ascot. Precedent tells us that uh, the most recent two abandoned Clarence House in 2013 and 17 moved to Cheltenham. And if you are looking to go to Cheltenham on uh, next Saturday, you are set for an absolutely bumper card. It was normally a seven race card. It had become an eight race card because the cross country chase would have been staged in November, uh, but was lost because the ground was too quick. That has been moved on to this card. The Clarence House chase would make it a nine race card. I guess crucial though, although the BHA is on a bound, I think to try and move a grade one chase. A lot of this interest in the race depends on Willie Mullins committing an ergomen to go to Cheltenham on Saturday week. I'm sure he would do. Um, and if he does do nine wonderful races at Cheltenham, Cotswold Chase, Cleve Hurdle, Cross Country Chase, Clarence House Chase, wonderful day. At least that's what we think uh, as things stand yes. at the moment. Fingers crossed. You know, we could get a dramatic warming in the temperature and ask it will be fine or whatever. But if, if the clerk of the course tells you on the record that they're struggling, then you take that at, you take that at face value. All right, moving on. Yesterday lunchtime, I and many others in the industry internationally attended the Magnificent Banqueting House in central London for the unveiling of the official announcement of World's Best Racehorse for 2022. It was an event that was sponsored by Longines and the winner, of course, was Flightline. However, the significant point was that Flightline on a rating of 140 equaled the rating given to Frankel at the end of 2012. This has caused quite a bit of debate and I asked Dominic Gardner-Hill, who's the co-chair of the International Federation of Handicapping Authorities, Dominic's from from the UK, how his panel had arrived at that figure. Well, using the normal methodology, Nick, in terms of working out his superiority over his opponents, um, calculating it down pounds per length, obviously you can't really argue with it. I mean, this horse is one of the most brutal gallopers I've ever seen. Um, six victories in his career combined total of 72 lengths or something in terms of his victories average winning distance of just under 12 lengths I think I've seen two freaks in my lifetime as a handicapper one was Frankel and this is the other one some will say well that's rather convenient they both landed on on exactly the same number when you all got together and decided what number he should have was there complete accord well originally after the Pacific Classic uh, we published at 139 in the interim list um, myself and Nigel as co-chairman were both very strong for 140 at that point 
um, but other members of the committee weren't quite so sure. You know, the horse only had five runs. Is this too good to be true? Is it one of those dirt races where he's flattered by the, the winning margin? Could you have gone higher after the Pacific Classic? You could have done. You could have done. So why didn't you? Uh, because we, using our experience as handicappers, Nick, we were trying to keep a lid on it and trying to come up with what we thought was an appropriate figure for a world-class racehorse, one of the best we've seen. Um, and we published at 139 after the interim list and one of the sort of caveats from the other handicappers was, well, let's see what he does in the Breeders' Cup Classic. Let's see if he can back it up with a similar performance. And he did. And after that, when we met uh, for the full meeting in December, then it was much easier to convince them that 140 was the appropriate figure for the horse. To what extent, if any, are you informed by... I know you're informed by race standards and historical standards, but to what extent are you informed by the fact that Frankel was 140? If, if Frankel hadn't existed... Would, would this horse's rating be any different? No, I don't think so, Nick. You try to be as objective as possible. Um, Country Grammar, I don't think, was quite the same horse in the Pacific Classic as it had been in Dubai, but he had settled down to a sort of level of 14, 15, 16, 17 in those intermediate races. Um, and using the dirt calculation of sort of 1.25, 1.3 pounds per length, it got you up to about 140. Um, I think the brutal truth is, and it's something that I, I often say when people say, oh, who is the best horse you've seen? Actually, nobody knows who the best horse is because we don't know how good Flightline was. We don't know how good Frankel was because nothing ever got close enough to push them to their, to their limit. Um, I just feel very lucky that during my life as a handicapper, I've, I've seen those two horses compete. How significant do you think it is from an international perspective, as was mentioned today, that Flightline raced medication-free? I think it's... I, I think it's vital, to be frank. Um, you know, we, as, as, when we sit down to do the world rankings, one of the things, you know, that we can't <coughs> differentiate is those that run medication-free and those that don't. We have to treat them all the same. But I think it's a big step forward, particularly, you know, from a jurisdiction where medication is used on occasions, that a horse can put up a performance like that medication-free. And to what extent is is this trying to compare horses of different jurisdictions on different surfaces one of your more satisfying or challenging jobs i think it it, it is challenging it has been challenging in the past um, i think the more experience you get at it the easier it gets um, but there's been a number of challenges internationally to get all these jurisdictions from around the world on the same level has been a huge challenge um, you know, do, can we be sure that a 120 in Great Britain is the same as a 120 in Hong Kong that's the same as a 120 in Japan or Australia and I think we're, we're pretty close to that now Baid ended up the world's top turf horse by a long way at a rating of 135 just to give a bit of context to his own achievement how many times would he have been named world's best racehorse? <laughs> well let's put it like this Nick off the top of my head he is the fourth highest rated horse overall since the inception of the world rankings in its current incarnation in 2004. So you've got Frankel and Flightline at 140, you've got See the Stars at 136, you've got Bayid at 135. So other than the Frankel years, the Flightline years and the See the Stars years, Bayid would have been the top rated horse. In the world. In the world. That's Dominic Gardner-Hill, co-chair of the International Federation of Handicapping. Uh, authorities he jointly came up with that rating of 140 some have suggested it's a bit of a fudge as i intimated to dom in the interview there lee that uh yeah it's just convenient we give him the same same rating as as frankel not a pound more not a pound less and there's been some debate amongst some of your colleagues in today's racing post that the sports trade daily as to as to whether this rating was valid uh, what do you think 
Well, I, I think Dom uh, was uh, very hopeful indeed when he used the phrase, you can't argue with that figure uh, to unit, because as you intimated there, there has been plenty of argument since we had this 140 figure posted for Flightline. I thought that interview was fascinating, um, Nick. Um, I thought the the way Dom explained how they went from 139 after the Pacific Classic to 140 uh, in these final ratings was really interesting. It shone a light on how these handicappers negotiate over numbers. Do I think Flightline is worthy of a 140? I think of all the people whose comments I've read, uh, particularly in the rating posts since these numbers came out, I think I probably agree with Ron, Ron Wood, uh, the most Ron is our American racing guru. He made the point, it's very hard to argue that you could give Flightline a 140. After that Pacific Classic, um, as, as Don was intimating, you could have rated him off the scale. He could have been a fair bit more than 140. He's very hard um, to assess. Frankel had a much bigger body of work that showed he really was worthy of a 140. With Flightline, to an extent, I think you're guessing because we just don't know how good he could have been. And I think it's regrettable that we won't find out how good he could have been because he won't race in 2023. Am I irate? that he has the same number as Frankel. No, I'm not. He clearly has touched people in all sorts of different ways. Those closest to him were his ownership group who were brought together when he was sold at Saratoga as a yearling for a million, which seems a snip now, given that 2.5% of him went for nearly five times that at the end of his racing career. One of his owners uh, has been Terry Finley of West Point Thoroughbreds. I caught up with him at yesterday's ceremony. Well, I tell you, Nick, the last time I was in uh, London, I was a second lieutenant. Uh, I lived in Germany. I took a, a couple of days on a bus trip. Uh, um, so that was, what, 1987. I thought that was a fun trip, but I will tell you, this is even a, a, a better trip. It's a thrill, and it's a thrill for all the partners. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just happy to be part of it. What strikes me so clearly, looking at you all today, Bill Farish, Kentucky Stud Country Royalty, Jane Lyon, pretty much likewise, Stephanie Ronis, powerful West Coast owner, and you, somebody who's been an absolute pioneer in syndicate ownership over the years. You're all from very different backgrounds, but you seem to have really come together as a, a, an incredibly cohesive unit. Well, I, I, I do know that appearances are, are correct. <laughs> you know, these partnerships are not easy if you, know, you have one or more that uh, you know, they don't know their role. And, you know, this partnership, it came together that night uh, that we bought Flightline at Saratoga. Jane stayed in. It's an incredible thing when a breeder, especially for an expensive horse, they get a shot to take some money off the table and, and they keep a piece of on, on the table. That, there's a confidence involved in that that's, you know, very, very strong. But, you know, it's a great partnership. And obviously when you have a horse like Flightline, you know, the, the dynamics of the partnership, um, you know, I mean, we had a clear road and it was it was a fun time. And um, we, you know, all of us are doing other partnerships. So, look, they're not easy, but I think I do think the future of the racing world right, will be centered around the power of partnerships. What do you think was the was the secret to this horse's successful career? If you could if you could boil it down into a couple of sentences, what would it be? Well, I, I think. I think what God gave him, an incredible amount of, of talent, uh, a talent level that, 
you know, has rarely been seen in the thoroughbred world with a, a, an incredible mind. You know, he, he just never uh, got upset, and he never got rattled. Um, obviously, Belmont, they showed that race. I think most other horses would have got rattled if they would have been checked and squeezed like that twice uh, down the backside like, like Flightline was. So you put all that together, and you, you, you put a horse like a flight line in the hands of, of an extremely, extremely good and confident trainer like, like John Sadler, um, I think you have uh, a shot to have magic happen. But you have to have good fortune, right? You have to stay lucky, and, and you have to stay away from the issues and the problems. Uh, and I think, by and large, flight line did. So, you know, when you put all those things together, uh, you have um, a shot to have something really good happen. And, you know, that's what we, uh, we took an incredible journey. And it, it, it's a journey that's going to continue in the breeding shed. But, um, you know, I think I speak for all the partners. I, you know, we're, we're very, very grateful. Why did, he, why did this journey touch you personally so deeply? Because it clearly did. I saw you visibly moved on more than one occasion. Um, well, I think, um, you know, we all got moved in any number of ways. But, look, you, you know, we all work hard. Um, uh, we all work hard and we all put a lot into this business. But we get a lot more out than we give anybody, um, especially when you get a good one. So, you know, the, uh, when you're around greatness, you know, we know that we don't have a chance to be around greatness in life that often. Um, there are a lot of people that never, never have the privilege. And I, I, I think we all, we all looked at it as, a, as an incredible privilege to be around Flightline. So, you know, that's why. Terry, congratulations. It's so good to see you here in London. Absolutely. Same here, Nick. Thank you. Terry Finley there, who has enjoyed the ride so much with, with Flightline. And as, again, when I started talking to him about it yesterday, tears started welling in his eyes. He's clearly been visibly moved by the experience, as has Bill Farish, a man you would have thought had seen everything in the game. And he was saying to me yesterday, Lee, that Flightline's early preliminary tests have, have been great at stud and they're just keeping their fingers crossed for the first mayor to, to get in full. But they said everything they've done in terms of testing him so far has been has been fantastic. And that the thing they've really been surprised with, and I think it was the same with Frankel, is how docile he's been at, at stud. And how easy he's been to deal with. He said they padded, you know, they padded his stable, expecting this kind of rampaging bull. And they said he's an absolute sweetheart. Well, I suppose Flightland did so little racing; he's quickly forgotten what it was to be a racehorse. That was satire um, there. No, it's, it's, it's great to know. It's great to know that um, he has adapted well to his new job. As I say, I, I regret he's not racing in 2023, but I perfectly understand why they made the decision that they did and if we're going to have these ongoing comparisons between frankel and uh flight line what will be interesting is if flight line can uh, become anything like the side that frankel has very quickly quickly established himself to be i mean frankel's early stud record it still is a relatively early stud record is exceptionally good he set a very high bar once again the flight line, but you know for certain that the quality of mares that flight line will have in year one and two and three will give him every chance of competing again with Frankel. Let's transition once again back to jumping. More Cheltenham graded entries out. The 
Level Weights Novice Chases, the three grade ones, the Arkle, the Turners, the Brown Advisory over two miles, two and a half miles, three miles respectively, and then the three and three quarter miles of the National Hunt Chase Grade 2. Lee, any initial observations? Uh, the initial observations are that there is not a great deal to observe, um, really, Nick. I don't think we've learned a huge amount in these entries. I don't think we expected to learn a huge amount in these entries. There's a small handful of horses who haven't been entered in races that we might have thought would be. But generally speaking, the big guns, and particularly the biggest gun of all, Willie Mullins, has, uh, as one would have expected, spread his options around liberally. Um, and in some ways, that um, simply underlines the problem we have with the current novice chase structure at the Cheltenham Festival, when you have horses entered in the Arkle, in the Turners, and in the Broadway, or horses entered in the Turners, the Broadway, and the National Hunt Chase, once upon a time in the old days when we were kids, uh, you had three weight for age novice chases at the Cheltenham Festival. They run over two miles, three miles, and four miles. Nowadays, we've got four, they run over two, two and a half, three, and three, six. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, the National Hunt Chase had nothing like the same status as the Arkle and the Broadway, plus its conditions were very different. Yeah, and this is the point we've made on this podcast before, isn't it, about false equivalence of races at the, the Cheltenham Festival. Uh, it, isn't it about time this National Hunt chase got nuked? I mean, before they changed the rules and made it four miles to three six, and effectively just made it a second division of the Broadway or the Brown Advisory, whatever you want to call it, uh, it was Cause of Causes beat a field of 16, Manila Rocco beat 19 rivals, Tiger Roll beat 17 rivals, Rathbinden beat 15 rivals, Lebroy beat 17 rivals. Uh, so 17, 20, 18, 16, 18, the field sizes. Since the revisions, 14, 12, 6. And it's going to be single figures again this year. They ruined it by taking it down in distance and effectively making it a second division of the of the three-mile race. I'll be honest, Nick, I, I, I don't have that... Uh, emotional hold on the idea of having a third race restricted to amateur jockeys at the Cheltenham Festival. I would be happier with a four-mile national chase, and if they felt that wasn't the right race for amateur jockeys, get, have the professionals in there. But I think the distance brings it too close to the, the brand advisory, and I don't like the turners either. Well, there is no doubt now that as we rapidly approach the final few weeks before the Cheltenham Festival, one of the most interesting horses trained this side of the Irish Sea, though by an Irishman, is the real whacker. And I'm, I managed to track down Paddy Neville this morning. Uh, Paddy, I know you're busy in between lots, but you've got all these options for Cheltenham. Tell me the way you and, and Davey, the owner, are thinking at the moment. Yeah, uh, there's a few few involved uh... Rebecca Dinnis is a share in the horse. There's four of us involved in the horse. Uh, and Alan Duffus is up in Scotland. So uh, we're kind of actually probably thinking realistically the Brown Advisory, yeah. That would be the more realistic one. But we're still still uh, we're still in the Gold Cup. Mm. Uh, just waiting. Uh, so it's not every day you'd have a horse for the Gold Cup. So <laughs> we'll just we'll just wait and see. Uh it looks like on the ground it could break up to uh, a wide open gold cup, you know. Mm. So we'll just wait and see. Uh, probably on the horse and his and 
his experience so far and uh, he's only a novice so probably the brown advisory would be the one yeah yeah i i can tell there's a bit of head and heart going on here you know every sensible bit of you thinks well we'll run him in the race that he looks like he can he can actually win and win quite well but is there a bit of all of you that thinks how many times is it going to happen to us that we've got one ripe and sound and ready for a gold cup yeah it's dream stuff like so we're all our life involved in horses so like it's not every day one of these horses come along you know so to have one in the gold cup is even special you know uh like everyone's dream is to have a runner in the gold cup or even a runner in Cheltenham, not to mind the gold cup so it's yeah we'll just take our time we have another uh we have another bit to go and see you know so we'll we'll make the decision <laughs> Do you do you, do you want to run him again, Paddy, or not? Between now and then, I'm not going to run him. No, uh, he's no. We'll have him. We'll have him. He just had a couple of since he's run. He he came out of his race for us well, and uh, we'll we'll just give him. He's just had an easy time there for the last two weeks, so we'll just give him another easy week and then just get him ready for Cheltenham. Tell me about tell me how how all the bits fit in to place. How you and Davy and Bex and and your other owner. How do you, how do you all fit together as a as a foursome? Yeah, we we uh, Davy's Davy grew up with me yes, in Ireland, uh, and I I came from Ireland there over twelve months ago, and uh, I probably the reason I came over was I I, I was struggling there training horses in Ireland uh, in the location of the country where I was. And then we started coming over. I had a few winners in Perth and Hexham and uh, Carlisle and places. So then between between uh, the cost and, and, and Everton coming over and the travelling of the horses and things, I, I decided that I'd give it a go. Uh, and I rented uh, I rented stables off Van Duffield. And uh, so I ended up... Uh, meeting a couple of people and we had a few winners and things and I met a couple of these owners and a bit of success brought a couple of more owners and uh, Davy stuck with me from Ireland uh, he was only one of maybe two or three owners that, that came stuck with me so uh, that's where that came that's where that's where it all, all fit in and and is it does it does it does it strike you as a something of an irony that you're now there as you know quote unquote one of the leading british hopes for the Cheltenham festival yeah yeah it's, it's actually it didn't it doesn't really bother me you know uh we yeah uh once once we're there we don't care yeah what <laughs> like we're under <laughs> it, well quite quite right you know, uh, we've met a couple of great owners here. Uh, English owners and Scottish owners, and a few of course that came with me, the Irish lads. You know. And are you in, are you enjoying it in in Yorkshire? I'm actually enjoying it. Yeah, uh, enjoying it a lot. Uh, uh, for the couple of years there, I was struggling in Ireland. I, I was pulling off winners and, and things like that, but it was it was just a constant financially and everything like that. It was. A constant battle, you know. Uh, any the prize money we were getting was going back in to, to keep the thing going and things like that. So, actually, <clears throat> I'm not really making money at the moment <laughs> because I had a big outlay of money uh, costing to, to get started, you know. But it's we're starting to get nice owners uh, and nice horses, and yeah, I am really, really enjoying it. 
Well, I think everyone's enjoying the journey with the with the real whacker, and I hope I hope you're not minding the, or I hope you're enjoying the attention a little bit. Yeah, yeah, we we're, we're busy, and that's the way it's be. Uh, we we like being busy. Uh, we do, we like it, and uh, it's actually I went home there for a few days last week, uh, back to Ireland, and uh, it was like everyone everyone. Everywhere I walked into Dublin, into a hotel in Dublin, and uh, and I these lads they were calling, "Come on, the real whacker." <laughs> so they might they might know me, but they know the horse more. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a, it's a great position to be in, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing him. I still can't quite work out where he's where he's going to run, but I can tell the way you I can tell the way you're thinking. I think. Yeah, yeah, you you probably yeah being realistically that that would be the race, but. We'll keep us. We'll keep options open for another while. All right, that was Paddy Neville. A horse who will be going for the Gold Cup is Noble Yates, but he won't be able to run in the Fleur de Lis chase if it goes ahead at Lingfield on Sunday because of a vaccination technicality. His trainer, Emmett Mullins, have failed to upload the correct and validated vaccination information to the Weatherby's app in time. Now, for clarification here, in Ireland... This needs to be downloaded and verified uh, before declaration. In England, it needs to be uh, verified before the five-day entry stage. Now, for information purposes only, uh, this horse was actually entered some time before. I've been speaking to the owner, Robert Whaley-Cohen, and I began by asking him if he had a contingency plan for the horse. Now he can't run at Lingfield at the weekend. Uh, I think we'll probably aim to go to the Cotswold Chase. It's only six days later. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, and I have to say the ground at uh, Lingfield, given that they've uh, abandoned Friday and they're covering waterlogged ground to protect against frost, could be very difficult anyway. Might be a blessing in disguise. Cotswold chase Cheltenham the following week. Who knows? Who knows? Um, so it looks like Cheltenham the following week. Um, I'm guessing the, the reports are good. Last time I spoke to him at Mullins, he said the horse was in good nick. Also in excellent order. Thank you. And how do you feel about the not being able to run at Lingfield because of the vaccination technicality? Well, I, I think it's a, an, an annoyance that there isn't a clicker when you enter to say you're missing some information rather than waiting till entries are closed at 10 o'clock and then just sending an automated thing saying, sorry, you haven't uploaded some piece of information we need. Why don't they do it the moment you enter? Which happens, I've just checked in, as you hear, I'm on an aeroplane. They say, I need your COVID information, I need your... Um, uh, these are information. Then you can sh- then you can select the seats, but until then you're not checked in. Uh, they don't wait for you to turn up at the airport and then say, "Sorry, you haven't uploaded your information." It'd be so easy for them to trigger, right? and it probably told it's not easy. But if if they can trigger it the moment entries close, they can trigger it the moment entries are made, and that would save all these issues. But we're not the only person who's been caught out by this. Um, there's lots of people who. who and I know there's been lots of information, and I know there's been lots of advertisements, but nevertheless, people do make errors. Uh, and it would just be terribly easy for women to send back a note. I think you're about to about to take off. It might be doors to manual. Not at all. Thanks for your time, Robert, and um, good luck if he goes to Cheltenham. Thanks so much. Robert Whaley-Cohen there, um, clearly accepting the fact that it's the trainer's responsibility, and it's not the first time he's he's failed to do this. Uh, so he, he should have realised, Lee. But he, he makes an interesting point about the, the, the clerical nature of it, that if the system's automated one way, it could be automated the other. It really is just a question of, uh, of filling in information and having it and having it verified. Yes, and I think it's a perfectly reasonable question that Robert Whaley-Cohen asks. Um, I don't think anybody 
could argue that if that um, facility was in place and trainers were reminded, have you done this? If you haven't, you need to do it. That that would be a good thing, a helpful thing. However, Robert K- what Robert Whaley Cohen is right. It is the trainer's responsibility. Um, and ultimately, the the fault for this blunder rests with Emmett Mullins. I've not heard Emmett Mullins say anything different to that, and I doubt he would, um, because it is his mistake, his job, his responsibility. That's the reason why uh, the horse can't run in the Fleur de Lis chase. They might change the system in the future, but I don't think we should be blaming the system. I think we ultimately the, the blame is at the at the hands of the trainer. All right, Danny Brock uh, was a licensed jockey and he is looking down the barrel of a very, very big ban. Uh, the entry point for what he's been found guilty of is an eight-year ban, but I'm reliably informed that the British Horse Racing Authority is going to be seeking well into double figures. Uh, why? Uh, what's happened and what's he done? Uh, this falls back to um, a disciplinary hearing, Nick, that took place in December Um related to nine contests that took place on Britain's All Weather Tracks between December 2018 to December, sorry, to September 2019. The case against Danny Brock, uh, a jockey who has ridden plenty of winners but hasn't had an uncheckered plast in disciplinary terms. Uh, it was described as an extraordinary conspiracy involving Danny Brock and uh, assistant trainer Sean McBride and three uh, four other individuals, Luke, Ollie, Eugene Maloney, Andrew Perring and Luke Howells. When the panel met in December at a hearing at which Brock did not attend, Brock is now a licensed Greyhound trainer uh, and said he wanted to commit his time to that. They looked at various races. Uh, They looked at the performance of Danny Brock in those races, uh, particularly one two-horse race that took place at Southwell in which uh, Danny Brock was beaten on a horse called uh, Samovar. And in general terms, the, the case against Brock and this, this idea that there was a conspiracy over horses he was riding in races, which were then either backed or laid. The, the, the case against Brock was, was explained by the panel in its summation by saying it defies belief that Mr. Brock was engaging in these improper rides for his private amusement. It is obvious that his deliberately improper riding and the lay bets by his associates are not coincidental there was nothing to explain why the gamblers were layers in the races where Mr. Rock was, Mr. Brock was not trying and backers in the races where he was. Brock, as I say, did not attend the hearing, but he did speak to uh, my Racing Post colleague, Chris Cook, yesterday. He denied all culpability and said, I didn't do anything. The panel thought different and was set to learn tomorrow, as you say, what Brock's punishment will be. All right, if you were with us on the show yesterday, you'll have heard us talking to Zach Purton. It was a super interview. If you missed it, well worth going back and listening to the multiple Hong Kong champion talking about his life in one of the most competitive jockeys groups anywhere in the world. And it is Hong Kong where we head now and pick up uh, J.A. McGrath in association with the Hong Kong Jockey Club. Nick, there's a big race meeting coming up in Hong Kong on Sunday week, January the 29th at Sha Tin. The Stewards' Cup over a mile on turf. But I'm going to ask you a direct question. How often would you see two great rivals meeting on the training ground or the pitch or on the court or in the ring as a warm-up or preparation for their forthcoming big clash? Not very often is the correct answer. But those who follow Hong Kong racing know it happens frequently. Yes, Hong Kong trainers love a barrier trial. 
The barrier trial is not conducted under the rules of racing that make it obligatory for every runner to run on their merits. It's what it says in the description. A trial. Nothing more. Trainers and jockeys find it a convenient halfway house between a race and a serious race course gallop. It gets the adrenaline pumping, and with a few other horses involved, it's almost like a race. But without the stress. It usually brings horses on. That's the aim, anyway. So, going back to the theme I started with. Two of the three big guns who will meet in the Stewards' Cup in 10 days' time sized up each other in a six-furlong trial on the dirt track, the all-weather, at Chartin yesterday. For the record, California Spangle made all to win the trial, doing it quite comfortably. While Golden 60 cruised home some way behind, but under a hold. Both trainers were happy, Tony Cruz with California Spangle and Francis Louis with a Golden 60. Just what was required when uh, it was the generally held opinion in both camps. And both sets of connections fear the rival who was at home in his box, Romantic Warrior, the Derby and QE2 winner. It's all building up, that's for sure. Not long to wait now. In the meantime, we have an eight-race card at Happy Valley today and to come the big Chinese New Year meeting at Sha Tin next Tuesday. I'm tipping the new trainer, Jamie Richards, to be the star at Happy Valley today. He sends out Flying on the Turf in race four and Rattan Kingdom in race five. Both horses seem to be very well handicapped. Flying on the Turf goes up a grade, but it was, can still win. So race four, number 11, Flying on the Turf to beat number six, Island Surprise, and one race later, race five, number two, Rattan Kingdom, who looks a really nice prospect, and he can win from number seven, Righteous Arian. Also on the card in race three, uh, have a look at number five, Kowloon Great. This was formerly trained by Jim Bolger. Uh, won one from four in Ireland, won a, a maiden at Nace, a three-year-old, but uh, seems to be shaping up now that he's getting to the longer distances. So race three, number five, Kowloon Great to win for Lyle Hewitson and Danny Shum to beat number 10 management folks. Take them in a tote swinger or in multiples. So that's all from the Hong Kong Beat this week. We'll have more for you next week. All right, that was Jim McGrath there with his news from Hong Kong. Thanks to the croc, Lee Mottishead is still with me. And Lee, for those of us who follow Australian racing, news that the Cox Plate, one of the great marquee races in Australia, is likely to move. I can't think what the equivalent would be in Europe, but it would be it would be pretty seismic. And there's been some pretty intense debates surrounding this as well. The Cox Plate is is the Southern Hemisphere's parade light of triumph. So in effect, it would be akin to saying, let's run the arc in in the, the start of November, um, in effect, as I suppose the start of early October. Um, with the Cox Plate, it's actually even bigger changes in the offing because the, the, the track is going to be redeveloped Mooney Valley very soon, which will completely change the nature of the race course. Just to put this slightly into context, Nick, there's been debate for a while um, in, in Melbourne, in Victoria, about their spring carnival, uh, which has three... Uh, three defining contests, the Caulfield Cup, the Cox Plate and the Melbourne Cup. Uh, traditionally, they've always gone in, in that order. There's been a feeling that the Spring Carnival, which extends beyond the Melbourne Cup Carnival, ends in a bit of a whimper with public interest and, crucially, wagering turnover plummeting once you get past the end of the second Saturday 
at Flemington. Um, Racing Victoria, the, the governing body there, put it to the clubs that own Mooney Valley, Caulfield and Flemington. Would one of those wish to move into to late November, to the end of the spring carnival, to extend that interest among punters and racing fans? Mooney Valley has evidently expressed some interest in doing that. It hasn't been decided yet but if the the cox plate does move it would go from in this year it would go from its position on the final saturday in october to november 25th four weeks later the same weekend as the japan cup uh, is currently staged so this could happen this year the representatives of mooney valley are saying probably 50 50 at the moment decision would have to be taken very early probably by february for this to be in place for 2023 but it sounds to me nick as though it could it could well happen it's a risky move but racing victoria has got a relatively new chief executive who's come in wanting to be radical joseph o'brien has spoken to the age newspaper in melbourne and has said that from an international perspective he thinks it would be a perfectly good idea. Chris Waller, of course, trained Winks to win for historic Cox Plates, has opened, also said that he's very much open to the idea as well. So a decision will have to be taken soon, but if it is made and the Cox Plate moves to the back end of November, that is a, a seismic change for the most prestigious weight for age horse race in Australia. Phew, lot to get your head around today. Have you got a tip for us? Uh, yeah, so no Cox Plate standard racing today, Nick. When I started this podcast, I was expected to tip River Chorus in the 6.15 at Southall. I can now see the River Chorus is now pulled out of that race. I'm going to go for Midnight Train, a relatively rare runner on the all-weather at Southall for Nicky Henderson, who I do not expect to be in attendance at 4.37 when this horse goes in an amateur jockey's handicap. But I don't think that will stop Midnight Train winning the 4.37 at Southall. All right, Lee, thanks so much. Thank you very much for your company. Busy day, even though there's not much actually going on on the race course. That was Wednesday, the 18th of January. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.